0: You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research
1: Institute. Trauma, and there I will try to focus on so-called carriers of influence. Maybe I will overemphasize their roles or I apologize in, in advance. Then I will show you uh, one uh, video clip uh, of uh, President Uvodan Milošević's speech which will try to illustrate how to construct uh, cultural trauma. And then I will try to speak with you a little bit about this ideology and give you two more examples and problematize then uh, this ideology and how to respond to it. Okay. When we speak about the social process of cultural trauma, there are so many events, disruptive events, that will not become a, a kind of basis for a cultural trauma this process is much more complicated. Such abrupt and uh, traumatic events and also social processes could uh, traumatize individuals or some groups of individuals, as uh, uh, Bruce spoke uh, yesterday. Uh, Some group can be immediately affected, but that is also not sufficient enough for the construction of the, the cultural front. What is here, I think, crucial are different carriers of influence. And these carriers of influence are important in meaning really making process in the public sphere. They can be elites, but also members of kind of representatives of denigrated groups or marginal classes. And they uh, they, their main task in the construction of cultural trauma and narrativization of it is that they need to persuade the wider audience that they have been traumatized and they should do that by answering some crucial questions. They come. Their main role is according to this theory first to represent the trauma, to rep- represent the group as well, which is originally traumatized, and to mediatize this uh, traumatizing narrative to wider audience. And (coughs) they could come from different different realms uh, in in society. Which questions they need to answer? First, is there a threat to collective identity? Is there some fundamental injury, an exclamation of the terrifying profanation of some sacred Well, Is it possible for them to construct a narrative about horribly destructive social process and a demand, of course, for emotional, institutional, and symbolic reparation and constitution on the social level, not on the level of smaller, directly affected group? Another question that they need to answer is what actually happened? Then, who is and how Is injured? Are we all injured by this this event, this social process? And what is the meaning of trauma for wider audience? And finally, who is to be blamed for this injury? Their different carriers of influence often stick to different conspiracy theories. Outcome of this process is a sort of narrative of pain. Now I would like uh, to give you an example of Slobodan Milosevic's speech from 1988, where you will see how did he constructed this trauma of local community of Serbs at Kosovo, with the trauma of Serbia, how did he uh, connected it to other uh, historical information and memory. Of course, he didn't invent this, this narrative but he used it and mediated to the wide wide audience in Belgrade in 1988 to over uh, 1 million people. But I need to give you a, a little bit of context. Context is socialist Yugoslavia in 1988, which was then in deep economic crisis, and in Serbia since 1981, there were interethnic tensions, protests, first of Albanians since 1981. There was a State of emergency uh, proclaimed for uh, for several years. And as you can see here, this is a map of former Yugoslavia. Here is Serbia with two autonomous uh, regions. One of them is Kosovo on the the south. And still also problematic, and you know about history about it. But in the 1980s, Albanians at Kosovo were asking for greater autonomy. While on the other side, mostly from Serbia, they were accused in press and by by political elites for counter-revolution and irredentism. You also need to know that was the poorest region in Yugoslavia, and in, uh, in 1981, uh, Kosovo Albanians were comprising of 77 percent, and they were rising also in their population, while uh, uh, Serbs are going down, with uh, also economic uh, (coughs) emigration as well. And there was a conspiracy theories then that Albanians are making children to expel and to uh, overpower uh, uh, Serbs there. There was also discourse about ethnic cleansing of Serbia and genocide. Uh, Idea about genocide was proclaimed first by uh, Serbian uh, Orthodox in, that is also a time of rise of Serbian uh, nationalism, and in 1986 you have mass protests of Serbs. And in late 1980s, Slobodan Milosevic started something that, that is called anti-bureaucratic revolution, involving cardinal change of nomenclatura, arrests of people who were not on his line, and attempts of constitutional change, which mean first, reduction of autonomy of these uh, provinces and also cultural repression toward Albanians. Uh, also, he tried to reestablish, what his narrative was that he's trying to, rest- to reestablish and make equal Serbia to other constituent republics uh, in Yugoslavia, because according to him, uh, Slovenians and Croats, members of nomenklatura, Tito and Karder were conspiring against Serbia, that was also explained in one very ominous paper, Memorandum of Serbian Academy of Arts and Sciences, that they tried to make, uh, that they were functioning in the politics. Strong Yugoslavia is possible only with weak Serbia. And it will be weak only if we put uh, these two autonomous regions out of uh, authority of central, central state. Of course, uh, this was then articulated during the 80s first as a drama of social socio-political injustice uh, of this nomenclatura which should be removed mostly from uh, from Kosovo and from Vojvodina another northern region and also the story about victimization of Serbia inside of Yugoslavia. What we need to know as well is that there is a history of violence between Serbs and Kosovo Albanians since the start of national movements in the late 19th century in Serbia. And in symbolic politics, Kosovo was a, uh, also has a special, special place. It is a central part of Serbian Empire, medieval Sy- Serbian Empire and chir- church and one event is uh, created. Constructed into the myth that is Kosovo battle from 1389, uh, which is here, which here functions as a, as a kind of transgenerational trauma. It will be exploited in another uh, Milosevic speech, famous speech of 1989, Gazimestan speech, but I consider this speech rather boring. <laughs> uh, the f- this one from 1988 is more emotional, you'll see. And uh, you will, wh- what you will see is, is his interaction with one million. Okay, it lasts for, for six and a half six and and a half half minutes. But I would like to speak uh, now that, that this this is one very ominous form of populism. But this is not the only form of populism. To enable one to accept a kind of undecidability between democratic. contemporary, media-enhanced modes of representation in democracies. And this form of populism became a part of mainstream democratic politics, mostly due to the changes in the function of the state. To function in a more and more complex environment, democratic state faces unforeseen developments and challenges requiring prerogative or discretionary power to elected politicians. Such structural condition also changes balance between branches of power in favor of executive branch, blurs the boundary between making and enforcing the law, and consequently welcomes strong and decisive leaders who are becoming more and more similar to populist leaders. Such populists do not consider, according to our DT, That represented uh, representative government as either empty formalism or a poor substitute of direct democracy, and they are incorporated into liberal democratic politics. This form could be considered, uh, according to him, as populism in power, which transforms conventional politics. Another form of uh, populism is. Uh, populism as a symptom of democratic politics or politics at the edge of democracy expressed in radical democratic movements. It is a sort of return of the repressed uh, of mainstream institutional politics. It reveals the limits of the system and prevents its closure in the presumed normality and or of institutional procedures. It is an internal foreign territory of democracy and considered as a form of improper behavior for good procedural Democrats and their suiting images of equilibristic functioning of the system. The the symptom for Arditi here is conceived as a substituted formation that stands in for a frustrated satisfaction or something amiss in democratic life. Such behavior masks, according to him, a traumatic experience, and its form is a compromise between repressed representations and repressing representations. And here populism postulates radical alternative within the communitarian space. Here he refers to Ernesto Laclau that grants visibility to the founding negativity or something that is is excluded of the political by summoning disruptive noise of the people. Populism here is like an awkward guest who disrupts table manners and rules of sociability. But there is also a third form of populism, and I think we can associate it with, uh, with Milosevic, as a possible underside or nemesis of democracy. In this form, populism is a form of misfire that mutates too easily into authoritarianism or even totalitarianism and in such situation, the leader abandons the role of representative and adopts a caesaristic position of the people's will incarnation and acts as messiah. The gap usual for democratic order between representatives and represented is dissolved in favor of the representative. In the situation of crisis and threatening fragmentation of society, inclination for strong president among citizens could lead to this form of populism, and if leader adopts undemocratic behavior justified by strong popular support, gradually such leadership disempowers citizens, manipulates their uh, participatory potentials, develops the cult of the leader, and finally institutionalizes the fear by actual as well as by threat of potential use of repressive state, state apparatus. Consequently, such regime demands submission and produce wide comfort. And it tries to convert always citizens into ungrateful, but always immature children of a strong father. Although such temptation is not unfamiliar for leaders in the previous forms of populism. Yes. Five minutes. Okay. This is one Uh, one graph which shows different uh, different forms uh, of uh, possible influence of of populism and I would like to show you two more videos Uh, and I'm speaking mostly about these negative uh, negative influences this uh, first we can skip for example uh, and we can go directly uh, to Donald Trump. There is the more ominous example that I would like to show you. That is one banned Turkish AK Party elections campaign ad from uh, municipal. Uh, and it is impossible to, to download it. So watch it. it, it there is a translation, it, it is not perfect, but just watch it. Okay, I'll. On, uh, the history of communist
0: propaganda for. I over a decade, now, but uh, and I, I thought I've, I've seen everything, but. Yeah, uh haven't. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, I'm starting off with this. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to um, uh, mostly talk. I have some images as well because I kind of feel visually oppressed by, it <laughs> <before> I, by <laughs> the voice, and uh, and I was encouraged to bring a video as well. So if I have some time, I think it's a very short one. Uh, I'll put I'll, I'll I'll finish with that as well. Oh, yeah. So well, uh, for Naboyshe as well. But I would like to, what I would like to talk about is actually the figure of the leader and the symbolic representations of the leader and the rituals and the myth that surround um, you know, the strongman, the leader, the dictator, um, uh, uh, and, in fact, uh, uh, strong political uh, figures. And what I would like to talk about is to, to link what I would call the leader cause uh, uh, and the notions, of course, the key notions of this summer school crisis. Uh, and, uh, and trauma, which is, which is really um, uh, a simple thing to do. I mean, Nebojsa Le- showed uh, Milosevic's speech, and i just like to refer back to that, how actually trauma and, and uh, the evocation of historical tra- trauma is, is intertwined with the construction of cultic images and cultic rituals around the leader. So when he made a reference to the suffering of the Serbs, you had the audience that burst out into kind of rhythmic chanting of the leader's name, like slow bow, slow, slow go. So this is a very good example of how leader cults and, uh, and references to historical trauma uh, are connected, and, and I'm going to mention um, uh, additional examples of that. So leader cults, of course, that's a topic that keeps on giving, unfortunately, and there are plenty of examples, and, and the most common questions I usually get is like, what about this guy and that guy, and then he had a cult as well, of course, but um, I had to make it um, uh, an arbitrary choice and, and select a few leaders and a few examples that fit the theme. Uh, here. Of course, that's a that's a phenomenon uh, that um, uh, became quite important again in global politics, especially since the 2008 uh, economic uh, uh, crisis. Again, there is the rise of the populist re- leader, there is a, a popular appeal of the firm hand, as you know, the Trump um, uh, video and, and the everyone uh, video showed as well. These are leaders that advocate, of course, uh, policies that allegedly restore order, restore the greatness of the nation, uh, restore stability, and and and, uh, and you know impose you know protect a certain uh, imagined way of life, and that's a truly global phenomenon. Um, um, and so you have examples within and without the EU. As well, of course, one of the most common examples that I mentioned um, is, is of course, the cult around President Vladimir Putin uh, in Russia, which is a well-established, and I would argue fully-developed cult. But you you also have uh, uh, your man, Viktor Orban, uh, in in Hungary. um, And I would argue that there are um, uh, uh, systematic um, uh, and uh, um, and quite consistent cult building tendencies around his, his figure as well. But our Brazilian colleagues could also talk about President Bolsonaro. Uh, recently, there's of course Trump, as we've seen. Uh, one could also link uh, the topic to uh, Yaroslav Kaczynski or his brother Lech Kaczynski, who is actually buried in uh, in the royal tomb and uh, and uh, the Krakow uh, castle, which is uh, which is quite uh, uh, like obscu- obscure and ridiculous. Um, but th- So there are plenty of examples, um, and, and this is a topic, again, that we'll uh, keep on giving in the future. So these are, what I would argue is that these, these are leaders that are, um, are actually represented in increasingly cultic terms and with the help of a vocabulary that appeals to mostly emotions uh, rather than, than reason. And again, I would argue that some of these leaders by now are surrounded by fully developed leader cult, and Putin would be one example, and Erdogan, arguably, would be, would be another uh, uh, example. what do I mean by um, uh, leader cult? Um, Now, I use this term in a slightly narrow sense um, and would apply it to the sphere of politics and political figures. I do not um, use the term cult of personality, which is the term that's quite commonly uh, used, and I have my reasons uh, to to do so. Um, uh, You don't want to get me started on that, although, of course, I'm happy to... Answer all the questions. Um, so, I would use um, um, uh, the term leader cult inter- instead of the cult of, per- inter- instead of cult of personality. And I would also um, make a differentiation between political cults and the cult of the celebrity for uh, analytical uh, reasons. Of course, there is a link between the two, but I would argue that political leaders, leader cults are deployed with a specific political purpose uh, and they uh, are integrated into the, into the method of rule. Uh, and they are uh, an an essential components of the exercise of of power as well, which is a feature that doesn't necessarily apply to celebrity cults. So a leader cult, uh, I would argue, is essentially a system of myths uh, which embraces text, and textual and visual representations, uh, and a system of rituals which, of course, uh, uh, includes uh, a wide range of uh, repetitive social practices with a a uh, specific symbolic function. So I would argue that leader, in order to have a leader cult, you have to have um, a, 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 a myths, you have to have representations, and you have, have to have social practices uh, uh, or rituals. Um, I have argued uh, as well before that the construction of cults actually require uh, institutional support. So you do need a range of institutions, of course, the media, uh, but also government departments, professional organizations, mass organizations, and so on, and so on, that support, create, and circulate such representations of the leader and also participate and construct uh, ritual uh, actions. Um, And what I would argue uh, as well is that cults are not merely byproducts of authoritarian leadership, but they, again, uh, that's the point I made before, but they do serve a specific political function, uh, which may include integration, mobilization, and so on and so on. And cults are deployed specifically as a method of rule uh, in close societies. Um, I have also made a differentiation in the past between fully developed leader cults and cultic representations. Uh, I, uh, w- I tend to agree with, with scholars in the field that uh, fully developed leader cults tend to emerge in close societies and authoritarian contexts, whereas you may have cultic representations, of course, that are spontaneously uh, created or, or created by by various institutions in a context where you don't have a monopoly of power, uh, there y- you may have, of course, caustic representations, also Catholic practices as well, but I wouldn't necessarily um, uh, call them leader cults. Um, of course, it depends on the context. Now, how is that all related to the notion of crisis? Um, uh, of course, uh, populists and uh, authoritarian leaders thrive in chaos and, 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 and crisis, so, crisis situations may be political, economic, moral, social, tend to bring such leaders uh, to uh, the forefront. It's, a, it's, a, it's a commonplace by now, but of course, it has theoretical underpinnings as well. Max Weber, most notably, uh, and his um, a theory of charismatic rule and, um, um, and um, the idea of extraordinary situations. Uh, he argued that uh, charismatic authority has to emerge in, in extraordinary situations and in times of crisis. Uncertainty and general social um, uh, insecurity, but crisis um, uh, is not necessarily. That's my argument here is the reason for the emergence of authoritarian leadership uh, and, of course, cultic uh, uh, representations and, and practices. And, and I would argue, as have uh, scholars uh, before me, that co- some cults uh, and actually fully developed cults tend to. Uh, emerge in periods of consolidation, and uh, th- th- this is political consolidation actually, because cults tend to be centralized products. So you do need an institutional uh, nat- network, a centralized institutional network, you do need manpower, you do need resources, and you need, need the time to actually produce um, kind of monumental cultic images. Uh, and of course in periods of necessarily that, that's not necessarily um, a, a priority. So, cultic figures may come to power as a result of of crisis, but cultic practices are deployed and systematized, or tend to be deployed and systematized in periods of political consolidation. Uh, And the cult of Stalin is is, is a well-known example for that. Uh, It wasn't really periods of social and political upheaval when when his cult uh, was flourishing, so it wasn't the first five-year plan, collectivization, it wasn't the great terror, And it wasn't the first uh, phase of the Second World War, with all the military losses, when the cult was actually built intensely. But it was a period of consolidation. Of course, that's that's a very relative notion in the Stalinist context. But it was between 1934 and 1936. And of course, in the late 1940s, with his 70th birthday in 1949, then uh, uh, th- those were the occasions when, when the cult was really uh, intense, and those were the periods of relative acu- um, peace and, and, uh, and consolidation and stability. Um, right. So uh, the argument that I would like to uh, make. Uh, oh, just another no- uh, point about about crisis. So, it's, uh, so crisis may present an opportunity for for cults to grow in intensity or cults to emerge, but it's not necessary. Uh, Uh, crisis that causes costs to rise. In fact, it's sometimes, and it's quite often the other way around, uh, so it is the rise of populist authoritarian leaders to power that causes and escalates uh, crisis uh, situation. Uh, So that's an important point that I'd like to make. Another point that I'd like to make in relation to crisis uh, is that such leaders often create the illusion of a crisis uh, in order to justify, of course, their Mm -hmm. political uh, so the, the, the overall point I'd like to make in relation to that, and this actually goes back to Rosemary's point about you know, what do we mean by crisis and, and how arbitrary the definition of crisis could be. Because in, in relation to cults, uh, crisis and consolidation actually go hand in hand. Um, and in the representation uh, of such leaders and, and emergence of cultic representations of such leaders, both crisis and consolidation uh, play a very, very important role. Now, why do cults and cultic representations matter? Uh, now, I would argue uh, that uh, one can make a relatively uh, accurate, educated guess um, about the kind of leadership a leader would implement when coming to power on on the basis of how a particular leader is represented when there isn't a monopoly of power. In other words, uh, cultic representations, as well as more developed cults, service barometers, uh, Uh, that indicate the degree of authoritarianism uh, in a a, a specific uh, social and political uh, context. And they kind of serve as as an indication of the trajectory uh, a leader uh, would would, would follow. Um, Now, what is the role of trauma in this? I mean, uh, it was represented before uh, in um, in, uh, 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 Milosevic's text. This is a subject that's actually relatively understudied. so uh, scholars of leader cults um, haven't uh, engaged with the notion of cultural trauma before. Um, but, uh, but it, it is, uh, I mean, as, as the video demonstrated, of course, references to historical traumas often for the core elements of, of cult building practices. One could, of course, the most obvious example would be Nazi Germany and, and the Hitler cult. And of course, the, uh, the, 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 the historical trauma in that case was the Peace Treaty of Versailles. Uh, which was considered as a humiliation uh, and um, uh, of, of, of you know to the German nation uh and the references to, to the Versailles peace treaty and of course all the conspiracy theories around that that you know the stab in the back and so on mm-hmm. and so on myth were integrated into um, into the imagery of, of Hitler and of course they boosted his popularity as well and it remained um integral part of his of his skull. So historical uh, uh, events perceived as traumatic often form an uh, integral part of the imagery of, of uh, uh, leaders. And of course, representations of histor- cultural representations of historical trauma, but also political representations of historical trauma tend to embrace the entire political community. Um, ra- and they rarely denote individual uh, examples uh, of trauma. And, that is, and, and I would also argue that, uh, representations of, of trauma uh, are highly selective, uh, of course, in a political context. And this is not uh, contained on the package, but they may contain traces of fiction uh, as well, uh, large, uh, large, huge traces of fiction. Um, in fact, and I'm, I'm going to mention examples to underline uh, these uh, points um, in the second half uh, of this uh, of this paper. So I have three examples that I'm going to talk about very, very briefly, and I'm just highlighting the key points and we could have kind of more substantial discussion during co- the coffee break or in the q session. Um, the first historical example comes from Hungary and it actually highlights how crucial references to historical traumas could be and how central they are in cult building practices. That's an example that comes from interwar Hungary. Uh, the second uh, example would actually be uh, related to Stalin uh, and the cult of Stalin and, um, and I would like to illustrate how selective of uh, the selective aspects of representing trauma and and the importance of actually forgetting or suppressing um, uh, historical trauma in order to build up cultic images of a of leader. And the third case, of, well, it will be about of course Orban and uh, uh, we'll see what we can make <laughs> uh, of it. Now the first example would be Miklós um, Športi uh, from um, uh, Interborg Hungary. I mean of course this may sound like a a Ridicul- ridiculously obscure example to uh, to some of you, but uh, it does highlight the, the, uh, the very uh, intimate uh, link between cough building and and historical trauma. Um, those of you who don't know, Miklos Horty, was the was the last Admiral of the Austro-Hungarian uh, Navy and led some successful military operations in this very region, actually, around the Bay of Kotor, uh, uh, in Montenegro, uh, so he had a military career career in the imperial, a very successful one actually in the imperial army. And after the war, uh, after the collapse of the empire, he assumed the role of regent uh, in Hungary and presided over kind of radicalizing right-wing uh, authoritarian regimes that collapsed quite spectacularly during the Second World War as well. Now, he was surrounded by by a gradually intensifying that embraced, well, part of dynastic traditions, but it's not part of our discussion today, as well as novel forms of of representing military figures um, in the interwar period. But the core component of this cult, and this is what I would like to argue, was defeat um, uh, in the First World War. And, of course, uh, the Peace Treaty of Trianon of 1920 um, was part of the Versailles Treaty system that, of course, um, uh, consented to the dissolution of, of, of historical Hungary. Now, this was considered as a trauma, as, as a major historical trauma at the time. And in fact, revisionism and irredentism were the, were the most important aspects of interwar uh, political ideology and propaganda. So revisionism and irredentism was everywhere it was represented in and political discourse. They were re- these themes were represented in literature, in visual arts, in music, there were prayers. Um, Uh, that that kind of represented this this theme and so on and so on. Uh, So one could argue that this specific historical event, uh, the Trianon Peace Treaty and the dissolution of historic Hungary assumed the characteristics of cultural trauma in this specific uh, context. Now, of course, Hortys' cult was intimately intertwined with this representation as well. He was considered and represented as the savior of the nation that saved Hungary from total destruction. He was considered as the builder of the nation. These are quite archetypal images, by the way, which is another issue we could talk about. He stabilized kind of rump, Hungary, as it was called at the time. Uh, And after the the Vienna awards of of 1938 and 1941, when Hungary grew in size again, he was represented as kind of uh, the the main uh, person who was responsible for the territorial uh, growth and um, um, of, of Hungary. So his figure, his symbolic figure, was, was as I uh, argued before, was, was intimately intertwined with the cult of revisionism and irredentism, and the core component of his cult consisted of constant references to and images, uh, and images of course, of a perceived historical uh, trauma. Uh, the Trianon Treaty. I mean, it's still part of kind of a right-wing discourse as well. So, if you go to Hungary and uh, meet a right-winger there, which uh, when the, the chances that you would meet one is quite high these days, unfortunately, <laughs> um, then they, they would the first thing they would say that you know, the, uh, uh, he, he who feels hurt by uh, uh, Trianon is is the real Hungarian. So, I mean, Triumphant actually defines uh, the meaning of nationhood and, and that specific subculture. And it, it actually defines um, uh, Hungarianness to a certain extent. So this is how intimately perceptions and images of historical trauma uh, are linked to well, national mood as well and, and to cultural practices. Um, so this is uh, this is Horty Dare, uh, uh, and uh, again this is this is an image that that represents. Um, um, uh, the connection between his cult and and the dissolution of historic Hungary. That's of course you have um, you have the you know the <coughs> ultimate <coughs> representation of sacrifice and, and martyrdom, Hungary, historic Hungary, on the cross uh, and on the image on the poster on the right. You have again historic Hungary uh, uh, right next to um, uh, Hortis uh, Hort uh, portrayed uh, and of course the, uh, the symbol mm-hmm. of. Christianity there as well. But I need to move on to, to Stalin. Uh, so Stalin, um, uh, again, it's, it's probably one of the, uh, another good example of, of how historical trauma is used um, uh, and the context of, of uh, cult-building uh, practices. Um, uh, one of the core components of the Stalin cult was, of course, the myth uh, of the Great Patriotic War victory uh, in the Second uh, World War, and this was uh, essentially the main theme of communist propaganda after the Second uh, World War. Now, the construction of the great uh, of the myth of the war uh, coincides with the apogee of the Stalin cult as well, which is the late 1940s, early 1950s. Again, the most <coughs> important event in this story is the celebration, the birthday celebrations, actually of the 70th birthday in 1949. Of course, Stalin had a cult, quite monumental one, in fact, before the Second World War, but it was basically victory and the war and the construction of the war myth that contributed to the growth of his cult beyond the borders of the Soviet Union. And it was basically the war myth that turned him into kind of an international cult figure that, uh, as some historians argued uh, resulted in the creation of an international cult community uh, as well. Now, the key tropes in, in the representation of the war um, uh, were, of course, suffering and sacrifice. The suffering and sacrifice of the Russians, mostly. Uh, you know, there were references to the other Slavic people, peoples as well, but it was basically, well, uh, suffering and sacrifice was essentially monopolized uh, by the great Russian nation, as Stalin uh, called this before. So it was argued that it was through the sacrifice um, of, of the Russians and through, of course, Stalin's genius that Europe recovered it's freedom. So you have, you know, the notion of sacrifice linked with the cultic imagery of Stalin that, um, you know, in, in combination produced uh, this myth of, of the war. So this is again how the cult of Stalin uh, and uh, uh, and um, uh, the cult of the war uh, was intertwined. Uh, I mean, as this is an image that depicts Stalin as, as the as a great commander uh, and the war obviously. Uh, and the, the best example, and if I had uh, uh, a longer time or if this was a, an actual class, I would show this uh, uh, episode uh, uh, to you. This is, this is a, from a film called The Fall of Berlin. Um, some of you might have heard about this. This is a, you know, the quintessential propagandistic representation. Of the war myth that was produced in 19, 1950, it's hilarious. Uh, I would highly recommend it. To you. Yeah. It's really, it's really entertaining, and the last scene is uh, it's just brilliant. I think it's sheer brilliance. I think it, that competes with the, the Erdogan <laughs> yeah, uh, the video uh, as well. He descends uh, to Berlin on a white airplane. As if you know God would descend from. He never actually went to Berlin. He never traveled to Eastern Europe or uh, anywhere after the war.
1: I never traveled by plane.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he never yeah, yeah, so of course it's all fictitious, fictitious but yeah, but well we could uh, talk about that later as well. But that this is the quintessential representation of you know of, of the combination of uh, of uh, of leader cult and, and representations of historical trauma. Uh, of course, historical trauma that uh, had a happy ending because it was victory, but there was a historical trauma that that this uh, the myth of the war actually marginalised, and that was the uh, that was the Holocaust. So basically, the the myth. Um, um, of the war uh, and the you know, construction um, um, uh, of the myth of the war left no place for representations of the Holocaust as a trauma in post-war uh, Soviet Union and in post-war Eastern Europe as well, uh, actually. So this resulted in a, in a paradoxical situation that you had the territories uh, on which uh, where the majority of, of Europe's Jews were murdered, were killed, but the trauma of the genocide was not commemorated by the regimes that defined themselves as anti fascist. Um, so you, you cannot um, actually invent that. But uh, yeah, so it's resulted in, in, uh, in a suppression of an actual historical trauma uh, because um, uh, of, 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 uh, of the domination and the predominance of, of the war uh, myth. Of course, there were also uh, manifestations of anti Semitism, official as well as popular, in post war Eastern Europe, especially in Stalin's. Soviet Union in the late 1940s, early, early 1950s. So this is, uh, again, just an example to show how selective representations of historical trauma could be and how the suppression or the silencing of an actual trauma could become as important as emphasis on trauma e- e- events. So this is uh, kind of a nice contrast to, to kind of the tr- representations of the tri- in the Hungarian now, about Orban, and let's jump to the last uh, uh, example there. Um, of course, uh, trauma is not really um, represented there, I would argue, but crisis is. Um, uh, he certainly, he has certainly become a. It's kind of a, a sad that I don't have to introduce him anymore <laughs> <laughs> to the international audiences, but because he's now a widely known figure. Yeah. That's the result why uh, I don't intend to return to uh, Hungary for some time. Anyway, uh, so, uh, so the crisis, the element of crisis, and I would argue that there, is, there are uh, very obvious and blatant cult-building tendencies um, uh, around his figure, especially since 2015, uh, and, 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 and I would argue that the trope of crisis is actually one of the most, one of the fundamental building blocks of his cultic uh, uh, persona. Uh, And that crisis is actually the main theme of government propaganda uh, even today. This was a notion that was codified by the the, uh, Constitution that um, um, they passed. It's actually labeled the post 1989 years. It's actually the history of Hungarian democracy, um, uh, you could say, as as years of turbulence. you know unpredictability and uncertainty, and the, and the notion of crisis and the trope of crisis remains the key component of government's communication strategy or propaganda. Uh, today, he himself, Orban himself, uses a language that evokes fear, uh, of course, anxiety, uh, and and threat. There is a linguistic analysis actually, which uh, you know, the sign of times. It was published uh, um, under pseudonyms by a number of linguists. which is a uh, it was basically a systematic analysis of Orban's speeches since 2004. And those authors, uh, uh, God, bless them, uh, God bless them, I don't know who they are, uh, but they argued that there is, a, there is a gradual increase uh, in, in the use of certain words in Orban's rhetoric sin- since 2004, actually. And it is the tropes of fear, anxiety, and threat that have be- become dominant in, in his rhetoric uh, uh, in recent uh, uh, years. So there is a trope of a nation under threat, really, which is the this is the key motive, just like uh, you know in the case of Milose- Milosevic. Uh, and this was a trope that was evoked during the refugee crisis of, of 2015, which is which is you know labeled as migrant threat and 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 government propaganda, and this still occupies centre stage um, uh, in Hungary. I mean, you listen to the news every hour, every two hours, there there is there is something about migrants and and how evil uh, they are. Uh, it's actually quite pervasive uh, uh, these days out there and, and kind of depressing, despite the fact that in August ni- uh, 2018, there were 13 illegal border crossings that were recorded uh, uh, in Hungary. So, uh, you know, so there is this really contrast between you know, perception of, of national threat and actual you know, uh, cases of illegal uh, migration, 13. Um, yeah, um, so yeah, so crisis is the dominant theme uh, and the nation on, on the threat. And of course, Orbán is represented as the man in charge, as basically the leader, the strong man uh, uh, who, you know, who uh, is kind of a decisive, uh, caring, uh, competent, and responsible leader who will lead the nation through uh, you know, troubled waters and, uh, and, uh, and difficult times. Now, there are, there are also examples of our tendencies to represent certain historical events as traumatic. And as I, again, I, I would argue that this is relatively marginal in the case of Orban, but there is the tendency. But his image is intertwined with images of, of communism and representations of communism uh, that tend to uh, um, perceive or, or depict communism uh, as a criminal regime, uh, which you know as, as it goes back to the, the uh, mid 1990s when the myth of the unfinished revolution referring to 1989, was constructed in right-wing circles. So the the idea that communism was an illegal, a criminal regime that suppressed the nation, uh, it was basically a small uh, minority that suppressed uh, the victimized uh, majority. Um, uh, That's when this image was constructed. And Orbán's, of course, image is closely linked to, to criminal or criminalized representations of of communism as well and, and tendencies to represent communism as a traumatic historical episode in, in Hungarian history. And there's another uh, historical event which has become a cornerstone of Fidesz propaganda since, um, uh, since the ban, actually. And that's the street protest of 2006. Um, you might remember um, you know, the, the footage. Uh, on the news, uh, I mean, there, there was, of course, police brutality uh, on the street. There was actually massive street violence there. Uh, but the images that Fidesz tends to use uh, are related to uh, one Fidesz MP being beaten up uh, by the police. So there's, there's an MP, he's still in the department, who you know, walks around and uh, not really knowing where he is, and is you know, uh, covered in blood. So images of a, of, of a beaten Fidesz uh, MP uh, uh, are involved to kind of define this uh, event uh, in 2006 as, as kind of a traumatic event in, in Hungarian uh, history. And there are, of course, constant references to uh, to the incident when when uh, 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 rubber bullets used by uh, the police, uh, actually, yeah, that's the last sentence, actually hit the eye of a person who went blind. So these are, again, images to kind of represent uh, the 2006 uh, events as, uh, as traumatic. Do you have time to show that one-minute video? Um, it has nothing to do with trauma and crisis, but I was encouraged uh, to show this uh, to you yesterday. It's Rosemary's fault, actually. Uh, so this is uh, this is um, uh, a propaganda video uh, which uh, portrays a meeting between Viktor Orban and uh, and the, the actor Chuck Norris, um, and that's. Uh, thank
1: you.